Chapter 5 is uh, really an extraordinary chapter, and I think as you've seen so far, all of Daniel is really so profound and extremely practical down to earth. Uh, what we're going to find in this chapter, I think, is that it is one of the most evangelistic chapters in the whole of the Old Testament. Um, it is aimed at reaching those who do not know Christ. In this case, uh, a king who did not know his God. And it would be good for us, I think, at the very beginning, just to go back and to rehearse the events of this chapter carefully so that we get the scene in our hearts and minds. Uh, Belshazzar, this king that we have in front of us here, uh, as the text says, refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father. Uh, that's a, a Hebraic way of referring to anyone who was a predecessor. In fact, this Belshazzar was probably Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. But nevertheless, they would use that term father, just as you have in the genealogy of Jesus in the New Testament, where it says that he is the son of David or the son of Abraham. It's because he's his predecessor, those who stood out. Uh, and there were several other kings who were, had short terms of service in between the passing of Nebuchadnezzar and this final accession of, of Belshazzar to the throne, but that carries with it some interesting historical things itself. In fact, when you read that portion of the passage where he says that if Daniel can read and interpret what's going on here, that he will make him the third ruler in the kingdom, it's because Nebuchadnezzar's actual dad, Nabonidus, was the king himself, but ruled in a separate city. And he, he brought Belshazzar up to be his vice-regent. And so together they ruled the kingdom of Babylon. So when he gives Daniel this particular position, he makes him third in the kingdom, meaning my dad is king-king, I'm king with him, but you will have that third position. So that's what's going on there. And when it speaks of the queen coming into the room, we'll come back and address her in a few minutes, that's probably the queen mum, his grandmother, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wife, who's now well advanced in age. As a matter of fact, Daniel is in his 80s when this takes place. So you've jumped from the last chapter nearly 40 years into the future, and you're now at Daniel being in his 80s. The, the queen mum's name we know from external historical uh, sources. Her name, Nidocris, was, um, a matter of fact, highly praised for her wisdom and the way that she carried on things after her husband Nebuchadnezzar died. This guy, Belshazzar, was in fact, we're going to restart that later, um, Belshazzar was in fact uh, a spoiled brat of the highest order. Uh, and that again is shown by history. External sources tell us that there were two stories that were famous about this man. One being that he had formed a hunting party with some friends. They had gone out to hunt and his best friend killed an animal before he did. So he killed him. No way you can do that. You know, I'm going to be first in line. And then one day, as they were in the king's palace, uh, one of his concubines mentioned that she thought uh, a guy who was walking by was rather handsome. So he had him castrated. That's the way this guy dealt with pressure. He, uh, he exploded, a lot like his grandfather, as a matter of fact, before his conversion. As I mentioned, Daniel's probably in his 80s at this point. He's retired. He's not part of the magicians and the Chaldeans that are called in to try and read the inscription on the wall. He's set aside. He's no longer the ruling um, wise man in the kingdom. And this Darius, the king of the Medes, who's mentioned in verse 31, uh, we're, we're told that the Medes and the Persians, and we're going to see this as we get into chapter 7, were going to come and conquer Babylon as a joint empire. Uh, Darius was 62 years old, as the last verse tells us, when he conquered the city of Babylon. His nephew, Cyrus, who's also mentioned in other places in Scripture, we're going to come back and visit him later, his nephew Cyrus was the king of the Persians. And so together, they were waging this war against the Babylonian Empire. As a matter of fact, all of these events are taking place. This event is taking place two weeks after Belshazzar's father had already been conquered in the capital city. 
And he's just throwing a party in his hubris that there's no way Babylon can be conquered. It's a remarkable response to what's going on around him historically. So he parties while they're under imminent attack. As a matter of fact, uh, Darius's group had come up, and again, we know this from at least two external historical sources, that Darius's group had come up and dammed off the, uh, the river which flowed through town. And as the waters dried up, and they had done this probably a week prior, when they finally got down to where they could, the army marched in right under the walls of the city due to the lowering of the river. The passage that tells us here in verse 2, when it says that Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, is an important word for you to keep in mind. Uh, Tasted is a nice way of them saying when he had gotten himself snockered. Uh, The guy was pretty lubed up at this point. He was three sheets to the wind. And you can tell that because as a result of the influence of being drunk, he broke with even the regular social mores of Babylon. In those days, a king would never invite his wives to one of these parties. It says at the beginning that he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of them. As he gets a little more under the weather, uh, he invites the wives in and then drops all decorum entirely and invites the concubines in. This was unheard of even in their society. Even in our society, there are things that are scandalous. And these were scandalous in their culture, even though there aren't a whole lot of things that are scandalous to us anymore, unless it's saying that something is scandalous. Uh, and then... And then he brought in these vessels that his grandfather had taken when they devastated the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. When it says that they praised uh, to the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, and wood, uh, the idea of praise there meant they, they were singing beer-drinking songs. Uh, they were raising the glass and singing songs of how the God of the Jews had been trampled, and they were showing this by drinking out of the vessels that were taken out of that out of that conquering. Then this hand appears on the wall by the lampstand. And you don't want to miss that word lampstand there. It's important because it is only used in all of Scripture except for the book of Revelation to refer to the lampstand that was in the temple in the holy place. It's the only time the word's ever used. And it's apparent that what he did in bringing the rest of the vessels out of the temple is that he brought the lampstand, which was supposed to represent the light of God in the holy place, and brought it into his palace and set it up so that he could see by it. And see he did, because the hand of God comes down and writes on the wall, which again would not have been unusual in his day, not that the handwriting there, but that there was writing on the wall. It was typical in the king's palace, and they know this from excavations, that the kings would have their great exploits inscribed in the plaster of the wall. This was a common thing. So, you know, in, in, uh, in 632, I went out and, you know, picked cherries, and I picked more cherries than everybody else. So they'd put that on a brick and celebrate how wonderful he was. And that's what's happening here. God is challenging that. So to his mind, this is a very explosive thing, because all of a sudden there is a mysterious phrase written on his wall, where his exploits are to be, and it's visible only by the light of the lampstand that had been in the presence of God. Uh, When you get down to verse 6, it says, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Several of the commentators will uh, admit that in uh, less genteel uh, Chaldean, uh, Aramaic, he soiled himself. He scared himself pretty, pretty good by all of this. And then he raged to get his desire met. I need people to answer this question for me, and I need them now. Matter of fact, it says that he he called loudly, verse 7, to bring in the enchanters. So loudly that it rouses his his grandmother, who ends up coming in to visit. The queen mum hears the, the commotion. She comes in and notice the transition here from the previous chapters. She refers to him not as Belteshazzar, but as Daniel. He has, he has had impact over these decades of captivity. And she reminds the king that your father, your 
grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a man in the kingdom, this guy's still alive. And he was able to answer these kinds of riddles because the spirit of the gods was in him. There's an interesting difficulty with translating some of that because it may in fact simply be the word Elohim, the spirit of God, the triune God is in him. But anyway, she, she says, you know, you can, you can get him, and so he does that. Although he pretends like it was his idea. Are you this Daniel? Well, I've heard about you, you know, that you can read these. Heard, two seconds ago, your grandmother was telling you, this guy was around and you better get him. Uh, but he's got to keep his hubris up. And so Daniel reads and, and uh, interprets the dream for him, the, the writing on the wall. We'll come back and we'll look at that in detail. Uh, matter of fact, the, the, the way that that's, that's worked out in those words is probably a three-level play on words, but we won't delve into all of it. And, and as a result, Daniel is, in fact, elevated to the third in the kingdom. going to be necessary because that night the kingdom falls, and a new leader is going to come in, and he's going to pick up the cabinet from the previous leader to keep the administration running until they can set their own people in place. And Daniel is in that place, even though he's well past retirement age at this point. And then Belshazzar that night is killed. What I want to look at here really are two main things, two areas of thought. The first is that as we work through this passage, we want to look at six warning signs of a gospel-resistant heart. And I can't think of anything more, as we work through these in this particular passage, anything more appropriate to our generation and our culture, where we have so much, so many privileges, and what those things can do to the heart and to the mind when it comes to dealing with spiritual matters. And then secondly, we want to look at three incredibly wonderful displays of a seeking Savior as we work through the passage itself. We can't help but see when this is done, and I want you to see the contrast between chapter 4 and chapter 5. In chapter 4, you have an example of an incredibly successful act of evangelization. Nebuchadnezzar is converted at the end of chapter 4. This is an example of failed evangelization. Not failed because the message has failed. Not failed because the messenger has failed. Failed because of the hardness of the heart and the refusal to believe and to deal with facts as they're put in front of us. That may be you today. That may be you. I don't know. So I I hope you'll listen carefully if so. So there's a series of warnings that come to us here and we want to look at the first one of these warning signs. And I take it from the... There's got to be a way we can just shut that off, isn't there? Oh, it's going to update now. I've really done it. Let's watch what happens. Um, Might be exciting. The first thing that we must be careful of, and this is especially true for those of you here who have Christian parents or maybe Christian grandparents. You've been raised in a Christian home. You've been exposed to the gospel. You've been exposed to spiritual things over time. But you must beware that you do not assume that your predecessor's relationship with God gives you special standing. Young people, simply because your mom or your dad served Christ does not mean that you are in right standing with God. You need to be considering those realities now. Uh, Years ago, when I worked for the funeral home, as I always like to say when we worked at the funeral home, never had a dissatisfied customer, never once did a customer complain. Um, the thing that's always good about working there, things you can't say on the phone when they call and you answer the phone and they would ask for the owner of the funeral home. I couldn't say things like, oh, well, he stepped out for a cold one. That never seemed to work. You've got you to think about what you're talking about. But anyway, while, we're, while we were there, I had the, the uh, opportunity to attend literally hundreds of funerals during that time that I was there. And it was amazing to me how many people would say, oh, well, you know what? My uncle is a bishop, or my, my sister is a nun, or my brother is a pastor. As though somehow that leaked over onto them spiritually, 
And they stood in special relationship to God because of the relationship to this person. It's not true. Every individual must close with Christ themselves. Every person in this room stands individually responsible to bow the knee to the living God, to run to Him for forgiveness of sin. Belshazzar was the grandson of one of the greatest men in all of human history with one of the most remarkable conversion stories written down in in our history, certainly in the Bible, and attested to from, from outside history. And it did him not one lick of good. He had enjoyed all of the benefits of that. His father was, his grandfather was a, a great leader and he had lived in the opulence and, and had been given this position, not because he was a brilliant leader, but because he had fallen into it. And none of that meant a thing when he stood before the living God. And it won't for any of us either. Simply because we know someone who knows Christ does not mean we have impunity when we stand before him for judgment. Beloved, each one of us here must close with Christ. Each one. It's a warning to those, to a Belshazzar. I don't know if that's what was in his mind, but certainly he enjoyed his hubris. And he lived without considering these things for himself. We see secondly, this becomes extremely important in our day, that a heart has grown hard before God and will make it difficult for one to be saved when the mind replaces needs with wants. Now this is major in our society. I need A cell phone. No, maybe you don't. I need cable. Well, maybe you don't. I need. And typically we're listing our wants. And as soon as we let our wants govern our lives, we no longer focus on the true needs that we have, which are the needs of the soul. Jesus teaches on this most clearly. When he talks about dealing with sin in your life. And he says, look, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. He isn't saying literally go and gouge your eye out. He's saying don't let anything be so dear to you that it in any way hinders your relationship with God. And be brutal with it if you must. And let's face it, our sins are dear to us. We love our lusts. We love our desires. We love our wants. He says the same with if your foot offends you or your, your arm or your hand offends you. Cut it off. Separate yourself from that thing. Because you can enter heaven lame or without an eye or missing a hand, but you can't enter without Christ. But you see, when your wants have crossed over and become needs, that's how it is that men leave their wives and women leave their husbands. I need something else. What they mean is I want something else. I'm unwilling to remain where I am. I'm unwilling to deal with these things in a proper way. And the whole world gets turned upside down. So pretty soon you can't live without that other person, even though in God's eyes this would be illegitimate. You can't live without that thing, even though for you it would be cutting off. This is a high danger in an affluent and spoiled society. When all of our advertising tells us this week, the one that got me was this week was how much my pets deserve better food. They deserve it on what basis? But you see, we deserve everything. We've earned everything. And therefore it should come to us. And, and when that mindset creeps in, then the sense that I need Christ will only come to us when I think I want Christ. And naturally, no human being wants Christ. We're born in sin and antithetical to that. And we'll allow our hearts to get increasingly hardened by this. We promote this in two ways, even in our homes. Parents, we can do this a couple of different ways. The first of all is when we cater to our children's wants above their needs. 
And so we train them to believe that every desire must be met. And when we do that, we inoculate them against the gospel. So I can't, you know, if, if, if little Johnny wants $300 sneakers, I've got to get them somehow. No. Or I need that new computer. The other one's fine. I've got to have it because I want it. And the want is now the need. And doesn't matter what damage it does in the process. And so we train our children and then they lose the ability to define true needs for themselves. Because we've led them to believe that everything they want is somehow a need and that need must be met. This is why we think little of transgressing God's commands. Because my want is a need that is above anything else. And after all, isn't the first duty, isn't the greatest love of all, according to Whitney Houston, to love self? And if I don't love myself first, I can't love anybody else. And good golly, I'm not done loving me. i got lots of loving yet to do. That's exactly where this goes. And, And so the heart has no sense of real need and loses the ability to distinguish what real need is. And we are resistant to the gospel. But it goes further. Parents, when we govern our homes based on our whims and desires and expect everything to be built around them. Well, when I come home, I expect all the toys to be picked up and the bicycle out of the driveway. Well, good. But has your desire become a need? So that if it isn't responded to, it's met as though a need has been denied you? As though somehow you've been deprived of food and water? But you see, we've taught our kids the same thing because we want them to live by our whims. And we're inflexible. Because it's just the way we want it. Maybe we need to rethink whether or not we're living that way and communicating to them when you get to be an adult, being an adult is you get to have everything your way. Says who? And the heart grows increasingly gospel-resistant. Everything must be just so, because this is how I like it. So in Hebrews 12, we read, Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For if they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. The King James teases this out in a wonderful way. For verily for a few days they chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Are we communicating that to our children, that the decisions we make for ourselves and for them are that we might lead them toward holiness, or simply that it might be the way we like it to be? Because then they've learned from us, well, this is how you live. You live serving self. We will not restart now. We've got to get rid of that. No. This can bleed over into leadership and in the workplace and in the church as well. So things must cater to my personal taste and whims or there will be consequences. It's a gospel-resistant heart that begins to think that way. And as we, as we continue to imbibe that system of thought, we will not need Christ. We'll lose any sense of being able to discern what a true need really is. Third, and we see this in Belshazzar, don't we? All of these are being, are being played out in him. Carelessness regarding who or what we allow to exert influence over us causes our hearts to grow hard. This you get in verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, when he had drunk deeply, that's when he commanded that the vessels of gold and the silver and that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple be brought. He came so fully under the influence of the alcohol that all of his thinking became skewed and outlandish. What is it that we allow to influence us. Because we choose what will influence us. Maybe you've said this. That person just makes me so mad. 
Why do you give them that power? Why are you allowing them to influence you that way? See, this is exactly what we do. We will give ourselves over to all sorts of influences out there. In this case, it was alcohol. It could be anything else. It could be substance abuse of of all sorts. And as we said, this is what led him to then breaking down the normal barriers so that the wives were let in and then the concubines and then going on and blaspheming God in what he did. Maybe you're under the influence of the affection of another person. And as a result, as you've continued under that influence, you have allowed yourself to transgress what you know are the right things before God. Maybe you're influenced by the fear that's running amok in the world today over the global situation. And as a result, you're letting that influence you and you're making decisions based on fear rather than on trusting God. Maybe it's political influence. Who are you coming under the influence of? Who are you submitting yourself to to let them mold and shape your mind and your feelings and your attitudes and your your understanding? See, there's far more influences out there than substances or alcohol or drugs. In this case, part of the influence was certainly his Lord's. They had gathered together, a thousand of them. He wanted to show off. He wanted to show them who he was. This, you see, replicated for us in the New Testament. When when in the New Testament there is a, a party given by the one who had put John the Baptist in jail. And he comes under the influence of his stepdaughter, which she comes in to dance for. He's overtaken with his lust and his exuberance. And and he promises, that's where the first wall comes down, and he promises her anything up to the half of the kingdom. Blank check. And then when she goes and consults with her mother and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter, it says that he was sorry, but for the sake of his guests, the other leaders that were there, he kept his promise to her. He didn't want to look bad. We're under those influences, aren't we? The crowd or the mob mentality can govern us right from, from the get-go. And it can do that from the right or the left, politically speaking, or socially speaking. What do we allow to influence us? Who do we allow to influence us? Peers? Trends? Young people, be careful of this. That you're not allowing yourself to be influenced by trends. There's nothing wrong with dressing trendy unless you can't possibly live without it. Lusts will influence us. Attitudes will influence us. What do you allow to exert influence in your life for him? There were a lot of things going on, but he was careless about it. And how do those influences distort and frame your opinions and your feelings and your actions? You see, if you are unwilling to bring yourself under the influence of God's Word and Spirit, you can be certain that everything else in the world will influence you towards some other end. Nothing in the world wants to incline you toward Christ. Nothing. Nothing. It's a staggering display. We see, fourthly, in the life of Belshazzar in this passage, and certainly, again, another great warning sign for ourselves, is willful willful ignorance of whose we are and what we're made for. Belshazzar ignored the fact that he belonged to God. Matter of fact, Daniel is going to confront him on that even later on in the chapter. When you get down to verse... 23, he says, You've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of this house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you've not honored He says, you're being willfully ignorant here. 
You were created by God, every individual in this room. You were created to bear His image and to know Him. And are you walking in willful ignorance of that? Why you were made? What you were made for? Maybe you don't want to wrestle with that question because you know that's going to alter the course of your life. You won't be able to just do things the way you want to. That there will be a Lord who who you have to answer to because He's looking for how He's going to govern you. Take what God has set aside for Himself. And this is what gets typified for us. You see, they take the, the vessels out of the temple and they bring them in so that they can party with them. Now, the simple reality is this is what they've done. They've taken what God has set aside for Himself to use for their personal pleasure. So let me ask you, what has God set aside for Himself that you're taking and using for your personal pleasure? And first and foremost, God has given us ourselves to honor Him with. And do we praise other gods with ourselves? Do we praise the God of gold, money? Do we praise the God of stone, brick house, wood, frame house? (laughs) What were you made for? What were we made for? We were made to know Him intimately. We were made to see Him and to hear Him to love Him, to experience His love, to to experience His kindness, to revel in His mercy and to rejoice in His grace, to, to dive into the eternal depths of His being and to be transported with joy and awe and wonder. And how do we use ourselves? We use ourselves to experience lust and greed and dissatisfaction and bitterness and anger and jealousy and suspicion and a thousand other defiling things when all of heaven is meant to be ours. And this, and this for us as human beings, in distinction from every other creature in the universe, higher than the highest archangel in heaven. This is what we were created for. But we live at times almost as though we're willfully ignorant of that. Whether you're a Christian here or not today, this is what you were created for. This is why we call you to Christ. This is exactly why. There's a fifth warning sign. It's, again, given to us in sad resplendence in this chapter. It's responding to the reality of dire consequences with the attitude of whatever. And that is our generation, isn't it? Whatever. You see it as you get down to the end of the chapter. After the interpretation of the what's going to happen comes to him, uh, Belshazzar goes on with life as usual. Now, he he's heard word, no doubt, that his... Father, or at least there's been an attack from the enemy. He knows they're outside the gates. And he's still going to just party hardy. 2000, zero, zero, oops, party over, out of time. So tonight I'm going to party like it's 1999. That's where he is. Thank you, Prince. Or the artist formerly known as, I'm not sure. How does he respond to the news of his impending doom? Verse 29. Well, Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with a purple chain of gold and it was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. So what? Whatever. You're going to die tonight. I've just confronted you with your your grandfather's history. I've confronted you with the truth of what's going on and your, your responses talk to the hand. Whatever. Unmoved. Business as usual. The same as as many of us here today. And he goes ahead. He, He does what he promises to Daniel, but you have to take note that honoring Daniel did nothing for him. And you may hear sermons like this or 
Other leaders give messages like this and say, you know, I respect those preachers and those men of religion. I have great regard for those who follow Christ. And that means nothing if you are not a follower of Christ yourself. Nothing. And then, and then we see the sixth warning sign. As I said, this is an incredibly probing chapter, isn't it? Dealing with the, the heart of the human being and issues with God. Number six, callous disregard for the evidences of how God had dealt with others before and around him. And we can do the same thing. Some of you here, you know you've had godly parents, godly grandparents. They have prayed for you. They have demonstrated the gospel to you. Oh, they've not been perfect. They've made their mistakes. They've sinned. We all have. They've got their weaknesses, their flaws. But in the process, you've ignored what God has said and exposed you to over the years. It comes out in verses 22 and 23. After Daniel recounts what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's grandfather, he says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, even though you know this happened because of your grandfather's pride, you've not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways. Final phrase, you have not honored. Doesn't that immediately bring you back to Romans chapter 1? With the fall of mankind? What is it that though we know God is God, that he's proved it, that you cannot look at creation objectively without recognizing that there's a creator behind it. It's impossible unless you're dishonest with yourself. And yet, knowing this, we as a race don't want to honor him as God in our hearts. Especially in our hearts. He can be God as long as he doesn't tinker here. Be God out there. Be God of my circumstances. Don't be God of my heart. And that's where he was. We can have callous disregard for the evidence of how God has dealt with others before us and around us. That's why it's important for us to know church history. See how God has dealt with lives throughout the centuries. Come back to the Bible. Look at these lives. See how they're played out. They're given to us as examples so that we can understand God's workings with people and and what that looks like for ourselves. And so that we will not fall into some of the same places they did. A hard heart is one that is assuming that Our predecessor's relationship with God gives us special standing or a heart and mind that replaces needs with wants. Carelessness regarding who or what we allow to exert influence over us. Willful ignorance of whose we are and what we were made for. Responding to the reality of dire consequences with an attitude of whatever. And callous disregard for the evidences of how God has dealt with others before and around us. But that is not the end of the story. It's going to be the end of the story for him. It doesn't have to be the end of the story for you. And all of us here who know Christ, we're going to identify in these moments with how incredibly wondrous his dealings with us have been. You heard it already this morning, didn't you? When Brian got up to pray. So how is it that this person in the biggest red light district in the world came to Christ yesterday through the influence, through the instrumentality of a young gal from upstate New York. Oh, how good God is. We're going to see this teased out here in this passage for us again. And the first I want you to see is the extent he's willing to go to. Look at the extent that God went to in preparing a last call to this man. And there's, a, there's an old story told about a, a guy uh, who was caught in a flood. As the flood waters rose and he was 
on the roof of his house, a guy came along in a, a paddle boat and said, Hey, why don't you come in the boat with me and we can go to safety? The guy said, No, I'm trusting God. He'll save me. Okay, off he goes. Water's getting higher. Finally, the guy is standing only on the peak of the house. Everything else is underwater. A big boat comes along, Coast Guard cutter, and says, hey, come on, we'll go and save you. And he says, you know what, I'm, I'm trusting God to save me. I prayed, and he's going to save me. Water gets higher. Now the guy's standing on top of the chimney. Top of the house is gone. A helicopter comes. Let's down a rope, says, jump on, we'll take you to safety. And he says, no, I've prayed and I'm trusting God. He's going to save me. He drowns. He gets to heaven. He says, God, what happened? He says, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> you didn't take advantage. Let me tell you, God has sent you far more, if you're not a Christian here today, than two boats and a helicopter. It's exactly what he did with Belshazzar. It comes in amazing ways. Little more exemplifies the, the future work, what's going to happen in the Gospels, the reality of Jesus' carnation, incarnation, than when we see that he had come to seek and to save those who are lost. Now look at, look at what's happened in Belshazzar's life. The queen mother has been preserved. His grandmother has his own mother perished, we know from history, two years before this event. But his grandmother is still there. His grandmother, who saw God's hand with, with her husband, who saw God work with Nebuchadnezzar, who came through this, who still had reverence for Daniel and for Daniel's God. She has her mind set on directing Belshazzar back to Daniel so that he can confront the truth. Daniel himself has been preserved well into his 80s. No doubt he was hoping he would go back with the, the, the Israelites and, and somehow be restored home. He never does. He stays in Babylon until his death. But he is still there as a witness to speak for God and to Belshazzar's soul, to evangelize him one last time, to speak to him yet again. And notice that in the very midst of committing his atrocities and blasphemies against God, God calls to him. In the very midst of his sin, while he's committing it, you, some of you have known that. When you've been in the very act of doing what you know is contrary to God, the Holy Spirit has pierced your heart at that moment and you've said, Not now. Not now. You've plugged your ears and you've hardened your heart and you've refused his counsel the same way Belshazzar did. And for some of you right here this morning, right now, he's doing it again during this sermon. He's calling you to himself. He's saying, now, come. I will forgive. I will receive you. I will transform you. I will make you my child. Run from your sin and run to me. And I have to ask you, are you going to refuse yet again? What excuse will you use when you stand before the judge? Maybe some excuses will roll into your mind, like, like what often happens with some. Maybe the, the argument you've formulated in your own mind today. Well, what about those who haven't heard the gospel? What's God going to do with them? Or what about the unreached people groups? I mean, I mean, I need to have an answer to that. What about them? But you see, the question before you today is, what about your soul? What about what you can see and read in your own language today? What we just had before us in the Scripture. What about the sermons you've heard? What about the testimonies you've witnessed? What about the prayers that have been offered up for you? What about you Think of all that God has arranged providentially to bring you to this place one more time. Everybody here has a story of how you got here today and the innumerable number of events that had to take place that worked through actually making that happen. That's God's sovereign hand coming to you and speaking to you today. And I'm going to ask you, what are you going to say to him? 
calling you. What will you do with it? Look at the extent he is willing to go to bring people to himself. Look at what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. And now look what he's doing with look what he's doing with Belshazzar. Can I tell you how how much the impact of this plays out over history? Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Some 500 years after these events. And three guys show up at King Herod's door. Wise men from the east. Chaldeans. We've been looking for him whose star we saw. People who for 500 years after the influence of Daniel were still looking for the coming Messiah. Oh, what God went through to witness to Herod that day. What he's gone through to witness to you time and time again. Every believer here, your jaw, I mean, just think back what God did, the weird circumstances he went through to bring you to himself. How strangely he's worked in some of our lives. For some of us, it was, it was on the brink of ultimate disaster. At times, I'm, if you ever get a chance, you get a chance to sit down, talk to Hugh Knight and ask him about how Christ got him on 9-11. It's thrilling. It's weird. Of course, he's weird. So, you know, God's God's good that way. He he works with us, you know, according to who we are. But wow, Ken Beaton, ask him who it was that gave him the gospel when his heart was pierced. It's really scary. So many others here. If your stories, if you went back and you tried to trace out what had to happen here and here and here and here and here in order for this to happen then and for me to... And you stop in astonishment at what extent he is willing to go to to reach us. And if you're not a Christian here today, what an extent he has gone to today to reach you yet again. Secondly, I want you to look at the patience he endures with. Look how patiently God deals with us about our souls. This comes out in the text very clearly in the interpretation of this strange writing. We don't know why the Chaldeans couldn't read it. There's only speculation about that. The interpretation certainly had to be divinely given. We don't know what language it was written in or what it should have been, but he gives an interpretation of known language words of that day. But but go back and look at that. Picking up in verse 24, Daniel says, From his presence the hand was sent. God's presence. And this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. But look at that first word, mene. It's repeated twice. What's he saying? I've numbered your days more than once. I've visited and revisited you. God's done it with everybody in this building. He has looked at your life and He has numbered your days. And maybe there's been a revision. I don't know. He responds to us in the sovereign mystery of how He has all that set out before time and yet works with us in time and space. I can't unravel that. But I do know that He bears witness here. I've come to you more than once and I've numbered your days. I've visited you more than once. God does not act impetuously. This is no doubt. And then, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. This would have had a huge impact on Belshazzar himself. How God, what, how he works through the fog and deals with what he has. The belief of the day was that after you died... Osiris, 
the God, would weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds. And if the good deeds outweighed the bad deeds, you'd enter into joy. Some people believe that today. Some people think that's Christianity. It's not. It's paganism. And what does he say? No, I've weighed you already. You're not dead. I've already weighed you. Everyone here's already been weighed. And in ourselves, we're always found wanting. We're too light. We can't balance the scales because on the other side is not our righteousness, but his. That's the standard we have to come up to. And so this would have hit him right between the eyes. He would have understood this perfectly. Some of you here have been resisting his call to you again and again, and I want you to know how he considers you, how he thinks about you, how he has been through the detail of your life more than once. Believer, this should be a great comfort to you that he knows every aspect of your life and that he's going through it all the time. An unbeliever, it should be a terror to you unless you repent. Which is why this was was given. Unbeliever, he's numbered your days too. Here's a question for you. Is he done numbering them? Is he done? See how he warns you and invites you yet one more time right now. Oh, he's so good. He's so good. So we read in Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And again in 33.11, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live and turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And I'm going to ask some of you that very question today. Why will you die? When he calls to you right now, it says, Come. Oh, with what patience he endures. And then lastly, I want you to see the persistence he pursues us with. How he deals with this man right up to the very last minute. Whoa. Some of you will say, well, that's good. Then I'm going to wait till my last minute. The problem is you don't know when that minute is. You say, oh, you're using scare tactics. No, I'm using truth tactics. It's reality. Think about how you've encountered the reality of God and how He deals with sin throughout your life. His being, His existence, His power, and His Godhead have been made apparent to every human being, so says Romans 1. And the fact that you know that there is right and wrong in the universe. That's hardwired into every human being. We know that from Romans chapter 2. And we know that justice will finally prevail. That's part of the thought process of every human being, clamoring for that, wanting justice finally to come, at least we think. We don't know justice from God's perspective very often. And that every person faces the reality of their own mortality and the question of what goes on beyond this life. You know that human beings are demonstrably above the other creatures of this world. You know for certain morality exists, that love exists, and the universe is not simply the outworking of the survival of the fittest. And then when we add the exposure to other biblical truths, and that in God's grace He's seen to it that He's brought into your life, and that has been the privilege of multiplied millions throughout history, even at the hands of charlatans, how can we ever accuse God that He hasn't done enough? Just look at the thief on the cross. How willing he is. Because that guy couldn't do a thing to reverse the sin of his life. That's who God saves. The problem is for us that none of us knows when the last minute will be. But this we know. That God has gone through it 
went to a great extent to prepare a last call to this man, Belshazzar. And God has gone through a great extent to prepare this last call for you today, if you're not a Christian. That he was patient in the way that he dealt with Belshazzar in his soul. And he has been patient in dealing with you. And that he deals with you right up to the last minute. But beloved, you don't know if that last minute is coming by the end of this service. A little while ago I was with some pastors and we were telling horror stories about preaching. We all have them. Uh, The best one I could come up with, and most of you weren't here then, although some of you were, was the first time I preached with, I was preaching and I got a bloody nose and I didn't know I had a bloody nose. and, And so what happened was I continued to preach and then suddenly realized that there was blood down my yellow tie. Lovely contrast. How I tried to continue preaching by... (laughs) Stupid, I should have just quit. Next guy says, oh no, I got got a worse one for you. He said, uh, first time ever my wife had convinced me I should put product in my hair. Moose. He said, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's 112 degrees out, and the air conditioning quit. I'm preaching, and all of a sudden that moose starts running down into my eyes. Now my eyes are burning, and there's tears streaming down my cheeks, and the people think I'm just being emotional. And then all of that streams onto my notes, and the notes get blurry, and then I can't read them. And he says it was just incomprehensible by the time I was done. The third guy was the president then of Toronto Baptist Seminary. He said, I got you all beat. He said, I killed two people in the same service. Said, we're done singing, and I'm getting up, I'm preaching, I'm just through reading the scripture and beginning my sermon, and a guy in the front row keels over from a heart attack and dies. We call 911, they come in, they carry him out, and he says, Now, as pastor, I feel it's my responsibility to try and bring calm and and everything to the group, so we're going to have a little devotional. We pray for him, the family, and everybody, we do that, and then we're going to sing a hymn. And the piano player goes over, sits down at the piano, and she has a heart attack and dies. Now, that was humorous to us. I don't know. And neither do you. If this is your last call to yield to the gospel. But I know he loves you enough to make sure it was done today. And I know he promises that all that come to him, he will in no wise cast out. He has sustained you and sustained others. He has prepared this church for over 60 years in this village. Moved us to a place where we're in this building at this moment. Done all sorts of things so that you're here right now. That you might hear the call to come to Christ. I don't know how much further you think he's supposed to go. But in patience and in extraordinary acts of grace, he's brought you to this moment. And if you're not a Christian here today, I say come. Come and know our Savior. Come and know forgiveness. Give your life to him. And believer, revel. Take this moment to revel at how patient he was with you. How extraordinary, how he waited so long, and how you're his. And will he not, with that, freely give you all things? What a God. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its straightforwardness and its clarity. I thank you that these are not not things that are buried but are right there on the surface for us. You said that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He told us that Himself. (sighs) If it were not so, none of us would be saved. But here's a, a multitude who can lift up their voices in praise to say thank you. 
And yet I know there are still a few souls here who know nothing of this great grace. Guard us against the perpetuating of the things in our day, in our age, in our culture, in our surroundings that will harden our hearts or those around us. Give us compassion for the lost and a passion to see them come to Christ. Let us be people who lift up our voices in constant praise and adoration for your goodness to us. And today, let it be this wonderful day of salvation for souls in this place, this hour. Come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You're dismissed.